Hey, wonderfuls. Welcome to episode 328 of the JV Club with my boy of summer, John C. McGinley. Uh, You may know him from Stand Against Evil, which is the show I had the very, very great pleasure of working uh, with John on. Uh, Many of you are probably Scrubs fans. He's also had just an extraordinary career in film and theater. Uh, I welcome you in to enjoy this episode with him. We cover a lot of ground. And uh, I wanted to just give a quick shout out to the uh, Global Down Syndrome Foundation. Uh, it is readily accessible online if you give it a Google or uh, if you would like. I believe we have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, uh, I hope everyone's doing great and having a, a kick butt summer. And I will talk to you next time. Oh, you know what? I wanted to give, oh, this is so exciting. Ooh, to just throw a quick shout out out there. I wanted to remember to give Nick a shout out for your wonderful email. Uh, all right, everybody. I will talk to you soon. Enjoy the app. first time you and I have seen each other since our show ended uh we both have uh verified that we were in a deep deep denial and had a bunch of other stuff going on so we had to have a quick recap of it being a criminal shame that we don't get to do stand against evil anymore we would in fact be in Georgia right now we would knee deep in the first four episodes yeah we would be so uh it's a, it's a, it's been, it was, it was weird to be in town and be aware of that. I had convinced myself because of how good the third season was, how well it was written on the page and how astonishing the ensemble was and the style of the piece and the guest stars who came in um, and the way it came together in post and the platform that IFC gave it. I thought we were going to do four or five more years. Yeah. And... I, I guess that's a little delusional, um, but I have been on shows that do five, four or five more years, and the 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 sophistication level of this comedy and the way Dana was rendering it was fantastic. Yeah. Uh, obviously, it didn't it didn't meet the the numbers that IFC was looking for, and then when that happened. Uh, I then convinced myself that somebody else was going to come in and swoop this thing up and just steal it. Yeah. Uh, go, going into the column of, oh my God, IFC doesn't want this. We'll take it in a second. Yeah. And it was crickets. Yeah. There was nothing. Yeah. And so uh, it, it didn't hurt my feelings as much as it really made me sad. Yeah. Uh, because I know we poured everything into that third season. Yeah. Dave, Dana wrote some unbelievably emotional roller coaster, um, some opportunities for you and I to really dig into stuff that's preposterously ambitious yeah. on, a, on a 22-minute horror comedy. Dana put all this emotional underpinning in it, and everybody just sank their teeth into it, and it elevated the whole piece. And I thought, sure, shooting, we are really on to something. This is going to yeah. be a great at least five-year run. Yeah. And then it wasn't. And showbiz is rough, <laughs> man. Showbiz is a bitch. Yeah. Uh, 
Was it hard going to, and we, I mean, I don't, I don't mean to malign any production that has come before or since, but was it hard going from a show that was so much kind of flowing through your veins, being part of the editing process and, you know, the scripting process and all of that to kind of coming into someone else's show and doing a little time? Or was that more of a soft landing? Cause it was like, well, there's a world outside of Stan. It exists. I'm going to do this other show, do an arc on it. It'll be fun, you know, but I won't it's have more, the, it was it more won't the weigh latter. on me. Yeah. It was more of the latter. Yeah. Because my friend and classmate, Eric LaSalle, who's the executive producer now of Chicago PD, had called the last three years, but uh, for all the right reasons, I couldn't go join them because you and I were trying to push this boulder uphill, uh-huh. all, the, all the press we were doing and all this stuff, which is fantastic. It was a, it was a treat. But then uh, it became clear that... Uh, I thought, wow, we we have pushed the boulder uphill. The third yeah. season is great. Yeah. We're good. Yeah. And so I said, sure, I'll come to Chicago. And Eric's sets are, um, I mean, we spent every waking second of our lives together at NYU grad, mm-hmm. 84, 83, uh, and 82. And so I, I know, I knew what Eric's sets were going to be like. Mm. And I wasn't going to have to do any of the heavy lifting that was all on Eric. And he set it up that, uh, look, when you, when you have a, a guest star come into an, unso- into an ensemble season six of a one hour where they're doing 22 to 24 a year, the writers are toast. I'm sure. I just remember that writers were on Scrubs season six. They're toast. Everybody's yeah. had their uh, affairs together. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know the characters. Yeah. Um, every every yeah. in the cops have all had chemical problems. They've all right. slept with everyone in the precinct. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, they've done illegal things. They've done so. They're done. you've explored every trope. You've they're, explored the small world of yeah. Every everyone. little yeah. And so when you bring on, <laughs> and, they, and they were they saved this wildly eccentric, ambitious, crazed character. And I told Eric, I said, just don't write him so that we don't look for any redemptions. Let's just write this guy. Uh, just a Machiavellian, ambition-driven monster. And they, the writers are like, we're, we're salivating. Oh, God, I bet. To bring something in from the outside that's just yes. like a whole new vibe. And so I was there for, uh, I was there for, from right before the Malibu fires uh, till uh, about a month ago. And so it was more, as you were suggesting, more of a soft landing. Yeah, except for the Malibu fires part where you were like, holy shit, my family is in Malibu and I'm yeah, not watching, there in this watching moment. Watching 800 structures burn from 2,000 miles away is the oh stuff that madness God. is made of. Oh. Because for those of us who are control freaks, um, <laughs> there was no control in that. Yeah. And by Sunday, I was with a friend of mine, Chris Chelios, watching the fire on a computer news feed of Channel 5. And uh, it was like... It's a better than even chance. The, yeah. Your house is gone. Yeah. And you couldn't get any reports, and there was nobody there, and it was a mandatory evacuation, and that was intense, yeah. really intense. And I'm a total shut-in. I don't leave the house. And so everybody's like, well, if the house burns down, at least you have your health. And I'm like, oh, stop. <laughs> do we have to do that right now? Do we, do we have, have to do that to? right now? <laughs> yeah. Let's not look forward as if it's already happened, and now I have to be somehow peaceful about it already. Yes. And it hasn't even happened yet, and I'm already supposed to be like, you know what? I'm 100%. chill. I, got my, I have my health. <laughs> and so that, the house did not burn, and uh, to, 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 that's a long-winded way of saying the Chicago PD gig was miraculous. Yeah. It was delicious. Yeah. 
and it gave me something to obsess over other than the fact that Stan wasn't coming in. I must tell you, uh, up until, I guess, the beginning of the year, I thought the phone was going to ring. I know. I did. I know. I did, too. I've done 100 movies and four, 500 episodes of television, and, I'm, and all of a sudden, I was just like this naive jackass. And I was just like, <laughs> no, someone's picking us up. Yeah. I know, but it's, it's so funny, too, because it really is usually the opposite. Because so many of us are so conditioned to have things pulled out from under us, but if you have a good run, and, it, and doing three seasons was a great run, you know, I mean, it's in terms of, like, better have normal. to have done it than, yeah, than not. But, yeah, to, to sort of come from uh, a show like Scrubs and doing so much other work outside of television as well... Um, you had, you you had as much reason to believe that it would have a, a long longer lifespan as you did that it wouldn't um, from a personal level. I allowed you know? myself uncharacteristically to completely fall in love with all you guys and the show and Dana and Frank. <laughs> and I'm usually a much tougher date than that. And yeah. <laughs> Because I know that it's, I know it's not going to work out. Yeah. I just know it's not. Yeah. And so you want to put on all that iron yeah. and all that armor. And I, I, I was naked, man. I was completely in love with all you guys, the whole ensemble, every person on the crew. Yeah. And uh, it, I wasn't, I wasn't prepared this time. Yeah. I'm going to ask you a question that uh, is going to go there politically. So feel free to a say I don't feel like talking about this, or we can uh, think about. Yeah, but uh, how are you feeling about the sort of um, uh, the boycott Georgia? The whole kind of like look at all these actors and people who have vowed not to work in the state until the laws off the books obviously it hasn't been enacted yet but um that's a sticky especially sticky for people like you and me who have like as you were saying of course this is why i thought of it these wonderful people there who we know voted against the bill who you're sort of going are those the first those are the first people who are going to feel it if we right. say fuck you atlanta then the first, jobs the, the, yeah the people on the front lines are the liberal people who are trying to turn that into a blue state and I, I really struggled with the idea of just going, yeah, we're just going to pull the plug on all of those people who, some of whom moved there to be able to make a living and do it, you know? Well, I don't want to tell anybody, any woman or man, what, what to do with their bodies or their birthing process. Um, I know in the special needs community, it's, it's very, very pro-life, and, um, and I respect that. I have always been a choice. And uh, so I've, I kind of had to walk a tightrope on this one. Yeah. Um, since I do spend so much time with, with people who are very are adamantly pro-life, and that's why they had the child, right. who they already knew had special needs. Right. And so it's a tricky balancing act. But as far as Georgia goes, I don't know what Dana and I would have done. Yeah. Uh, and Frank. Uh, because at some point or another, since politicians aren't being held accountable from your president on... Um, at some point, these people have to be held accountable for I these know. decisions that are preposterous. Yeah. And so I, the, the, the spineless answer to your question is I'm not sure. I yeah. wasn't put in a position I feel this, yeah, this I, year I feel as, very as a producer of a show that employs about 125 people um, what, uh, what we were going to do. I would love to have been, uh, I would love to have ha had that conundrum, but uh, we didn't. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I didn't give you a great answer, but I don't know. The no, answer. that's a that's a real answer. I definitely was not asking it because I felt like there was going to be because I don't have one either. That's kind of why I wanted to run it by you and see sort of how you were feeling. And I hadn't thought about uh, 
about the tie-in with a special needs community. And of course, that makes perfect sense. Um, I guess we should explain why you have those ties. I think most people who follow you and are fans of you know. My son, Max McGinley, who was born 21 years ago, um, and is doing fantastic. I think of him as uh, as musician Max, myself. (laughs) Thank you. Mm -hmm. Double M, M and M. Uh, Max was born with Down syndrome, and uh, I have become a a fanatical advocate uh, of, of trying to... Uh, help those who can't help themselves. Uh, and so Maxie's opened that window to me. And uh, it's pretty much become my priority uh, in front of work, uh, since work kind of takes care of itself, but the special needs community does not. And so I serve on the board of the Global Down Syndrome Foundation in Denver, Colorado, which is a science-driven uh, a charity that uh, it's not a kumbaya, let's pass out pamphlets version of a special needs charity. Um, the Global Down Syndrome Foundation built a wing at Denver Children's uh, that only serves people with Down syndrome. And we chair all these scientists who are studying Alzheimer's because if you're born with Down syndrome and you do live long enough, you will get Alzheimer's. Yeah. And so uh, our focus is on Alzheimer's. Yeah. Well, Alzheimer's-like conditions will present. That's just a fact. Yeah. You won't get hard, fatty tumors uh, for some reason, but you will get, uh, you can get uh, blood cancer, but you will not get uh, hard, fatty tumors, but you will be diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Yeah. And so all of a sudden, because the boomers are about to experience an avalanche of Alzheimer's, and nobody yeah. knows what it is except for brain, brain plaque, but they don't know what to do about it. Yeah. And so our community has become this uh, very valuable little petri dish of research. And so we've leveraged federal research dollars against that. And so all of a sudden, the Down syndrome community is serving the boomers who have an Alzheimer's epidemic coming their way that there's no infrastructure in place for it. In fact, nobody knows what it is. Yeah. And so that's where our focus is. God, thank God. I mean, it really, well, and I, as you know, Brandon, uh, my fiance, my, I don't ever know what to call him. I, I, ha- I hate the in-between of fiance, so I, I, sometimes I just call him my husband because it feels easier. It's easier. Uh, but he, his, his brother has fragile X, which we've talked about in the past, which is, of course, not Down syndrome, but uh, has some similarities to the inheritability, you know, the sort of genetics of uh, the development in the womb, all those kinds of things. There are, there, I would say, they're cousins. And, uh, and there is research being done with the correlation of dementia and fragile X as well, because uh-huh. there are these similarities in the way the brain fires or comprehends or the protein I mean I don't know I'm not an expert but I follow that I'm very interested in that as well because anytime you have something that is specialized that can I don't want to say kill two birds with one stone but that when you have two things that are that are closely related in that way sometimes it is the smaller group that says well we're prioritizing this you guys are just flinging theories wildly because it is this sort of epidemic but if you have something specific and you can come at it from a specific direction thank god you know what i mean because i do feel like that's where the real information and the breakthroughs are going to come i think uh, the whole community is hoping that yeah that the fragile x and the people whose 21st chromosome tripled and that they'll yield some dividends there. And so we've been able to leverage federal research dollars for that. Okay, we're going to take a break. I will be back after a word from our wonderful buddies at Maximum Fun. Maximum Fun. 
This is NASA. Uh, I see a flat Earth, but we should lie to everybody about it and say it's round. 10-4. Maximum Fun brings you the latest podcast, an expose on the flat Earth. I want to take advantage of humankind and make them believe a lie so that they will trust us with the government. It's all an elaborate lie. And when you get on a plane, they purposefully fly you farther than you need to go. It's disgusting. It needs to be stopped. And if you listen to Ono, Ross, and Carrie, we will tell you the truth behind the lies. I'm just just kidding. kidding. No, we no. won't do that. We will just tell you the truth behind the truth because what we do is we look at extraordinary claims. That's right. We've gone undercover with alternative medical treatments, fringe religious groups, fringe science claims, the spiritual, paranormal. We're there to check it out and let you know what happens. Is the Queen Mary haunted? I don't know. Find out. We show up. We make friends. We learn what happens when you ask questions and we tell you all about it. And we get all that funky stuff done to us. It's Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org. This is a, the most cliche sort of like um, TV interview. I like we don't know each other. I'm just asking you vague questions. Someone else asked me to, but, but I but I do think that it's worth asking because I do think that it is something that I know you run across every day, which is sort of what do you feel like these sort of common misconceptions are that people have about Down syndrome that they don't if if they're not if they don't have someone they care about in their family if they've not interacted with someone with Down syndrome, what do you feel like needs to be brought to the table to them that they're just not seeing or they you know maybe it's not their fault that they don't understand, but it's a misconception. Um, I, I find that a lot of people in uh, a lot of the people who are born with Down syndrome have a cognitive awareness uh, that people don't understand. So that uh, Max is, com- while he, Max has a verbal challenges, communication challenges, he understands absolutely everything that he's hearing, uh, which can be very maddening and frustrating, mm, I'm sure. sure, for him and definitely for us. But I would say that's the number one, that um, when people refer to they as the community with special needs or challenges, uh, and people with Down syndrome wear it right on their face with the distinctive different markers we mm-hmm. have, uh, that they, the, the people take liberties uh, about addressing they and conversing about they in their presence. Oh. And it's um, yeah. really rude. Right. Uh, and, and hurtful. And I always just... Uh, the, 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 to me, the, the corollary is a person with cancer. Is it, w- would you talk about um, this person with cancer the same way you're talking about this person with challenges? Yeah. Uh, no, you never would. Of course not. Yeah. And so that's, that's the number one, that our community can, uh, can understand absolutely everything they're hearing. Yeah. Do you have, do you, in terms of the fierceness, which I admire so much and I, I just love and embrace about your dedication to that organization and to the sort of cause at large, did you, have you been always a person who, who was able to kind of ignite that fierceness in you, whether it was for obviously this perhaps being the most worthwhile uh, part of your life or cause, but did you kind of grow up as a person with strong opinions and a person who was assertive about kind of communicating those opinions and, and so forth? I guess the more germane to to what I've arrived at is that having been a person who was never bullied because I wasn't a good target, um, just being a jock and um, be, being pretty physically capable, which is not what a bully wants to feast on. Right, right. Uh, I've I've seen bullies and I've I've put them down, 
and so I now, I'm impacted by people who are insensitive to the special needs community as having a, a, a component of bullying in them. So in other words, people use the R word, which for us is retard and retarded. Right. Um, even after they've been told that's really offensive and you, you would never say that about the Jewish community um, or use epitaphs about uh, the African American community or the gay and lesbian community because there's a consequence, there's a tax, right. there's a TAX on that kind of language. And then with our community, there's not because you've picked the perfect target of cowardice to exercise your vitriol because you won't get uh, any blowback. Um, because that's not what our group does. We're trying to make it through the day. That's it. Mm. Caregivers and our population are trying to get through today. And so when they're impacted by this divisive language, uh, which is hurtful uh, at all times. And uh, so what I always ask people is, isn't there a better way to say that? And then the question is, well, what? And the answer is, well, when you said uh, that you're acting like a retard, um, you, you, you were careful not to say you were acting like an N-word. Uh, because if you said that, there, there damn sure would have been a consequence. Sure, sure. Uh, and then the person says, well, I didn't know. I'm like, well, now you do. And so maybe, maybe armed with that, you, maybe there's a better way to say it. Right. That you were, you were acting, because it's never a compliment to use the R-word, ever. It's always put down. Right. And uh, so that, that's my approach. Since you're allowed to talk any way you want, uh, and I can't change the way you talk, but I can invite you to maybe find a better way to, to, to express yourself. Yeah. And so I teach it every once in a while, I teach um, seminars at UCLA and at USC with screenwriters. And that's, that's kind of the in. Is there a better way to break this joke mm -hmm. than with the R word? Were you, were there special needs kids in your high school? I'm going to take, I'm going to go back to your teenage no. self for no. a second so we can was a dig into that hammer. a little. Yeah. Max, when Max came along 21 years ago, it was a cosmic hammer to my skull. And so, no, it was very disorienting. Excuse me, I had no, I had no um, reference to, to go back to, zero. And so you kind of, you, you stick your head in the sand for a year or two, uh, trying to figure it out. And the first year or two, there's kind of a, of a, there's kind of a triple threat to people born with Down syndrome. You can, you can have cerebral challenges, which, which present with um, seizures, a seizure disorder. You can have different heart issues, um, and then you can have digestive. Some people get all three, some people get one, some people get two. Maxie got the, uh, the seizure disorder. And so, you, you tr I, like I say, you're trying to make it through the day. Yeah. And then those abate, hopefully. Uh, some, some of our people, it doesn't. And then you start looking for what, what are we supposed to do with this kid? Yeah. Uh, and then you start getting impacted by bullying and all that. But, um, what I always tell everybody, every family when, I, when I'm in these different um, family circles is that every family uh, has challenges. And whenever they purport to not, <laughs> you can pretty much start your stopwatch. Yeah. I mean, ask, ask Dylan Claybolt's family um, before he shot up Columbine. He was a nice little boy. Families have challenges. And if you're lucky enough to have a kid born with Down syndrome, um, you hit the jackpot. And so, uh, and, and the number one reason, and I've shared this many times with a lot of different families, is that most of us are gonna go through life and be serviceable to good at things. Our job, we'll figure out how to be good or serviceable at our job, and we'll, we'll, we'll get through the week, and then we'll do something for the weekend, and then we'll go back to our job, and we'll be okay at our job. When you're, when you're a parent of a kid with Down syndrome, 
you're going to have to be great at something. So it's an invitation to be great at something in your life because you're going to have to overcompensate and you're going to have to go to the speech therapist and the occupational therapist and you're going to have to get in the car and, and drive this child everywhere and the child might be with you for the next 50 years, God willing, 60 years. Uh, and so you're going to have to be a great parent but you, you get to have a shot at being great at something. You were okay in high school, you made it through college, now you got a job, you're making your 120 grand a year. It's a good, everything's going great, you're, you're good at stuff, but you've never been great at anything. Hmm. You get a chance to be great at something. Yeah. That's a gift. Yeah. I don't think it's a burden, I think it's a gift. It's an invitation to be great. I love that, that's fantastic. It's true. When you said um, 50 years, 60 years, uh, has the, have, have life expectancies increased over time? And if so, how, how so? What's being done to um, preserve the, the, the lifespan? Number of? one is early interventions. Um, in other words, the most basic one is that every child, every child's formula that's ever been made has increased iron in it. Well, iron is poison to our community. And so parents find that out. And so now all of a sudden, all your organs are being protected because you're not being bombed with iron from the formula you're giving the child for the first, I don't know how long you get formula, year and a half, two years of your life. And that's, that's just rudimentary. But all, all the early interventions are, are, are having our kids live much longer. I don't know what the number is, 60, 65? Yeah. I mean, I didn't the double, come at you Of course, you the double-edged sword is if you live to 65, you have Alzheimer's. Boy. So. <laughs> Congratulations, everybody. Yay. So uh, we're not there. It's not easy. And so, uh, yeah, but it's not easy for every family. True. And so I, I'm always careful not to do the too much of woe is me um, on, on kids born with Down syndrome. And because uh, it's been a gift. Max has been a gift for us. Uh, biggest gift in the history of the planet. Do you come from a big family? Yes. It's a three boys and two girls. Three boys and two girls. Irish, every, may we were, I? Yeah, and we were the yeah. table at the neighborhood where everybody was allowed to have a friend. So there's usually 10 kids at our table. Yeah. That's just the opposite York, of how I grew up. Jersey. By the time we got to Jersey, if you, got, if you, if you my sister Janet, had, if you were allowed to bring Beth, well, then I was bringing Steve. Right. <laughs> and Mark was bringing Bob. And yeah. Jerry was bringing Biff. And now all of a sudden, there's 10 of us at this table. Yeah, 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 and so yeah. so my mother did the most genius thing. She was a school teacher. She's still alive, but she was a school teacher for about 25 years. And we had this big circular pine table about eight feet in uh, circumference and in the middle was a lazy susan do you know what a lazy mm -hmm. susan in it's a, a top that goes spin her around, around yeah and so she would let uh you my sister janet and your friend everybody would line up in the kitchen and you'd serve yourself a, a hot dog and uh, some beans and maybe some lettuce and then you'd come and you sit down and everybody else would come and sit down and because there were too many people here there was usually about two hot dogs left. Uh -huh. <laughs> and so uh, you'd have to sit down. And the two rules my mother had at that table were uh, you could touch that Lazy Susan for those two more hot dogs when you did two things. You did, that plate had to, you had to be able to see the enamel on that plate. <laughs> <laughs> and you had to tell a story and contribute to the meal. Really? Yes. That's awesome. It's great. And That's it's fantastic. interesting because the, the arc, at least for you, little boys, of, of not caring and telling a story to when testosterone starts to be introduced when we're just petulant little <laughs> monsters. Uh -huh. And we're like, I'm not telling a story. Yeah. In fact, I don't even like anybody here. Uh, <laughs> but also, I'm hungry all the time. Yeah, but I'm hungry. 
<laughs> so you look at a hot dog and you go touch that thing. And my mother and father had this thing where they'd, they'd flip the other side of a spoon over. And so um, they'd be holding the spoon and then the handle, they'd whack you on the wrist. Uh-huh. And if you've ever been whacked on the wrist with a spoon handle, it hurts so much it's disorienting. <laughs> oh, God. And my mother, for some reason, I don't know why to this day, she was just a regular Irish woman in, in dimension, that, that is. Um, she had octopus arms. She could reach across <laughs> the table and hit her wrist. She had to have some kind of superpower with all those people roaming around no there. No question. Yeah. But the woman somehow was able <laughs> to strike a blow from 10 feet. And so if your wrist got hit a couple of times, you never touched that Lazy Susan yeah. until the plate was clear and you told a story. I, I rode my bike to school today and I didn't hit a crack, so I never broke my mother's back. Uh-huh. Yes. Now, boom, now, boom, yes. Boom. Stuff in the face, stuff in the face. And so, but what I, my takeaway from that um, wasn't the clearing your plate as much as what I do with my kids is you, you have to tell us your roses and your thorns, yeah. what happened today. And you can, if you had no thorns, great. If you had no roses, you have to tell us at least something that happened today. Yeah. And p- people largely want to share what happened, and especially at dinner. Because when the kids go away at 8 or 7.30 and then they don't get back, you know, with all the different pottery and ballet and aerial and all the stuff they have, now it's 7.30, I want to know what you did today. Yeah. And I could care less if you're in a bad mood. Yeah. And so I'll sit. Well, wait. Even Max, I make Max, uh, tells three things. And so he'll say, uh, he works at Starbucks, he'll say, uh, Starbucks, band, uh, beach and I'm like no 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 <laughs> so we use a trigger I mm-hmm. I worked at Starbucks today okay great number two um, band I had good band rehearsal today great now we're talking now we're and we're using these these verbal prompts and these cues that get language going yeah did she, was great. that something that your mom brought from her family as well, or was it for was it her, was she kind of figuring out on the fly because of such I a big family? I think she was figuring out on the fly. Yeah. Because this this was a zoo. <laughs> Dinner was a zoo. <laughs> I'll never forget that lazy Susan. It was the greatest thing ever, but you couldn't touch mm-hmm. it for seconds yeah. until you cleared your plate and contributed to the meal by telling a story. Did you where where do you fall in the in the oldest male. So it goes Pam, oh, okay. John, Helen, Jerry Mark. So you so when so if you if you were the first person to move out, then yeah, you didn't experience the sort of like I was second to youngest, so I sort of watched it whittle down as people oh. moved off and went to I mean I was not that person, but it's interesting that you only experienced the big family group because you were the oldest, so you would be the first one to thin it out, I would assume. Yes. Yeah. So that's what you knew. That's absolutely what you knew. Yes, and a lot of their parental, uh, when they were cutting their, their teeth on being parents, uh, the trial and error uh, puppy was, was me. Sure, sure. What were the, you said you were a jock. What sports did you play? Absolutely anything and everything. Yeah. It was really fast. So track, football, baseball, basketball, anything. It didn't matter. Yeah. We weren't, because my mother taught school, and so she wasn't home till four or five um, we weren't allowed in the house when we moved out to Jersey. We weren't allowed in the house until dinner. Mm. And so it never occurred to any of us to go and to go to the house. Yeah. I mean, everybody was hungry, like uh-huh. as you're suggesting, <laughs> but you weren't allowed in the house. Yeah. My mother, oh my God. That's I'm probably smart. Me. So my, we're, we were one of the first houses in the neighborhood to have a propane grill. Oh. And so 
My mother, who taught at, at a school called Pingree in Jersey, it's a private school. She'd get home when, when teachers get home, which is probably 3.45, 4-ish. So she'd take a frozen bird out of the freezer and she'd put it on the counter and let it defrost for two hours. And birds don't defrost in two hours. It takes a long time. And the, in the intervening time, right around 5.30 or so, she'd start the grill and it would get super hot. And then she'd <laughs> take the frozen bird off the counter and stick it on the grill. And of course, the outside cooked, but the inside was... <laughs> largely uncooked and so when she cut it open it was black on the outside and purple on the inside oh, no. so we always called it black and purple chicken Great. and we grew up eating black and purple chicken. you did Absolutely. you were eating that raw chicken like you read about <laughs> to the bone otherwise you couldn't get seconds thank god nobody got black and purple whatever, dog, yeah <laughs> With these mutt Irish jeans. I was going to say, you probably have whatever they call it. Like they say that terriers have quote unquote garbage stomachs because they can just take what, like a shark. Just give me a license plate. Put it in there. I'll figure out a way to digest Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. It was like I remember the first couple of dogs I had in Malibu. I had a friend named Mary who uh, I brought my chocolate labs up to her house. And uh, I always saw her feeding her labs uh, the bones, you know, chicken bones and stuff. And I'm like, Mary, isn't that going to do the blah, blah? And she's like, no. So I started feeding my labs the chicken bones, and they just turned it into confetti. Yeah. <laughs> there was no there was no shards yeah. going anywhere. <laughs> they were taking care of business. Yeah. Did you guys have pets when you were growing up too to add to the cacophony? No, my mother pulled the plug on that pretty quick. I think that's probably pretty smart. We had a dog a couple summers in a row, and they both died. And because I wasn't going to take care of them. Right. And the other jackasses weren't going to take care of them. Right. And she was taking care of all the jackasses. And so the dogs, one got hit by a car, mm. and the other, I don't know what happened to the other one. <laughs> I have no idea. History. One day was there, one day was gone. No. And, and oh. no, there were no more dogs. Yeah. And my father hated cats. And so I now... I guess the kids aren't going to hear this, but I've now perpetuated a lie since my uh, 12-year-old was born that I am allergic to cats. You might be. Well, I'm not. And so they can develop late. And so they uh, they love cats, and I've just uh, I'm a liar. I, we, <laughs> we lie for a living, and so I just said no. I get the hives, uh. and I get the skin, and I can't. And then I start to wheeze, and I it's a horrible. And so they've now, they call my mother Nana, and they call Nana, and they said, is, is, uh, is Daddy allergic to cats? She's like, no, no, he's not. A, did he tell you that? He's not allergic. What is, why would he say that? And they're like, Dad, you busted. You're not allergic. I'm like, yes, I am. Nana like, doesn't know hey, things. I know a lot of special effects makeup people. You want me to get hives? I'm going to get hives. I and can I also, have hives tomorrow. I'll throw Mom right under the bus. I'm like, right. also remember, Nana's nuts. <laughs> <laughs> Remember, she's a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You guys so, aren't going to win this. We're so, not getting a cat. You're we're not just not going to win this. And so now my, my, my standard response is, you guys can get as many cats as you want. One, two, three, four, five. When you have your own house. <laughs> you have a real cute dog, though. Yeah, we have a, yes. That dog came to set. Yeah, and That's a good dog. I was like, this is a good dog. Good size, smart as hell. The thing about dogs where we live, and I'm, I assume where you live as well, most of Southern California, coyotes. Yeah. Coyotes will eat your dog, no problem. Yeah. Out where we live, there's, there's a gate on the way to the, to the beach, and on the gate, every once in a while, not every once in a while, often you'll see um, 
those those eight by ten pictures of a of a missing puppy with a with a number like you could pull off in college, and you look at it and you're like, oh, you poor bastard, yeah. your dog's not missing, he's gone. Yeah, your dog's not missing. Yeah, because the coyotes are so. I saw I saw one this morning. He looked like a wolf from Game of Thrones. I was yeah. Like, <laughs> What is they're, that? They're, they got good eating out there. Well, yeah, that, after yeah. that five-year drought, now there's tons of food. Yeah. You know, after all that rain. Yeah. We have all these. I built a baseball field in the lower part of my property when there was a, a writer's strike, the third year of Scrubs. So sure. right around 2003, 2004, I had nothing to do. And I, if there is such a thing, you can get in good acting shape where your capacity to look at two-page single space and just stick it in your brain in 30 minutes you can get that muscle pretty strong and 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 it takes you really start to put on these these blinders like a Kentucky Derby thoroughbred where you just this is what we're doing and they just kept throwing all this stuff at me which was great and but then all of a sudden the writer strike happened and it was a couple of episodes into season 4 or 5 and I'm I'm wired yeah. and I couldn't sleep so I started to excavate the lower part of my property with a pick a shovel and a wheelbarrow and just so I could sleep. Yeah. And uh, so now it's there's this lovely baseball field on the lower part of the property that I called the strike. I named it after when I <laughs> built sense. it. Maybe not that lucky for uh, baseball when you strike out, it's bad. <laughs> but no. it's called the strike. <laughs> and so from from the the master bedroom, you look down at the baseball field. And one morning I saw these young little bunnies out there scurrying around. And so I woke up uh, Kate and Billy Grace and I brought them to the window. And Kate, who's eight years old, and she's Edward G. Robinson, uh, <laughs> she said, you want to know their names? And I said, who? She's the bunnies. I'm like, sure, I'd love to know their names. She goes, because there's a lot of red-tailed hawks here. She goes, dinner, oh, no. oh, lunch, no. and snack. Oh, no. Eight years old. Oh, my God. Because the red tails just come down with impunity, and they're just... You're you're gone. Oh God! I probably could have used more of that perspective when I was little because I definitely was the kid who just couldn't stand to see another like I, I couldn't stand the predator prey of it all. And it's real. It's it's very very real. And what are you going to do? I mean, that's it's exci- it, 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 at its best. It's exciting, and I hate to say that because I do sort of feel bad for the bunny, but. Somewhere along the line, yeah, I stopped being, hor- yeah, and I stopped being as horrified and was more fascinated by like, wait a minute, this is how life works. This is how that hawk eats. This is how, you know, I sort of can't, it's, you, you shouldn't really play favorites with whatever the prey is, even though it's easy I mean, to do that because they're damn cute. And they're the most magnificent things you've ever yeah. seen. Oh God, they're beautiful. Yeah. We have a lot of owls because I'm right off Griffith owls Park, are and we have some serious. I mean, we had we were hiking once, and <laughs> I mean, really, like the shadow over the moon because you do not hear anything. It is crazy and how silent not those they're birds not are. Hunters. Yeah, yeah. So just having we had a, an owl sort of curiously follow us home, just going from tree to tree. And you just, there was, the only way to know it was there is if it hooted. Like, oh, it was okay with you knowing, but you were not going to catch it flying because it was silent. Oh, they're badass. Yeah. So cool. So cool. I was, I, people who were like, ooh, owl, spooky. You don't want to hear an owl. I'm like, wait, what? That's, What no. was the three or four favorite things for you, your takeaways from, from shooting three seasons of Stan? Oh, man. Well. Aside from the obvious. Yes. Yeah, so oh, aside from what's staring me right in the face? No. No. <laughs> 
aside from loving the crew and all that, what, what kind of interesting oh, things wow. really impacted you being on a... Yeah, well... And playing Evie for, for yeah. three years. For, for me, it really was... Uh, I, I was I was actually talking about this uh, to a buddy because for me the gift and I'd love to hear your perspective on this because you've done so many different roles especially when it comes to the roles that are vulnerable but also tough or or brave but really they're stupid you know they're just reckless um, for me I because I do have and you know this because I have had you know panic attacks and shit like that um, the the concern of an experience that in some way minimizes my ability to take care of myself, whether it's heat, whether it's lack of sleep, whether it's a stunt, whatever that is, uh, there's always going to be, or to this point, there has been some voice in me that's like, what if, what if this, and then what? And it kind of catastrophizes. And playing a character like Evie uh, was, was so wonderful because um, she wasn't going to not do it. You know what I mean? And that really helped. I mean, it sounds kind of hokey pokey, but I buy that. You know what I mean? Like for me, that there were things I was doing as Evie that I would volunteer to be first for, uh, up to and including going up on that rig when we were gonna be floating in the air, that I was like, well, she she would do it without even questioning it. Like she doesn't give herself time to consider the consequences because she can't afford to, because this is the world that she lives in and this is the job that she's picked and this is the and she's a mom and all this kind of stuff. And she keeps having to help friends in, in trouble. And so that really gave me permission in a way that, uh, you know, I think that, that, that someone might wonder who doesn't act like, Oh, do you, what do you, what do you get back from your character? And sometimes someone might say like, Oh, it's not like that. I don't, that's not how acting is for me. Well, it definitely is like that for you me. You felt empowered. I felt empowered. That's I felt astonished. And coming on the other side of it going like, oh, maybe I don't need Evie next time. Like, I can be Janet and still wow. be brave about this thing. That's a and, gift. And absolutely. So I felt, I felt like I became stronger. I became a stronger individual in terms of what I could do, what I could take, what I was or wasn't nervous about, you know? So it was huge. Huge. That is huge. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really, really grateful for it. And it, made, it did make me hungry for more. Like, well, what is, what is the next role going to teach me? What is, you know, what kind of encounter, what kind of experience am I going to have in another job that's going to teach me something new about some other part of the world that I wouldn't necessarily have a relationship to, you know? Is that something that you've experienced in, in, your, in your life as a professional actor? These things that characters have to do them, so then by virtue of that, you have to do them, and then you find out, like, oh, I, can, oh, I like that. I'm not sure about that, but the, the most... The most wonderful thing that I took away and what I was most proud of with Dana was shepherding the tone of Stan because it was such a um, unique tone. We had to uh, change a lot after season one, largely because of you, um, that, that you had to start driving, you and Evie had to start driving the story because it became very screwball. And for people who don't want to know what screwball means, it's it's... It's a, a kind of comedy that was born out of the 40s uh, when the, the protagonist is always the female. And so it's either Barbara Stanwyck in The Lady Eve or, or it's uh, Rosalind Russell in uh, His Gal Friday. Um, they're kind of top of the... Lucille Ball becomes uh, Screwball in the 50s or 60s, whenever her show was on. And so even, even in switching the protagonist to Evie, and making it heavily Evie driving most stories, shepherding the tone with Dana 
um, of keeping the thing grounded in loss, uh, ultimately Stan's loss and him trying to reconcile that at all times, even if it was under, not always up on a billboard, right. but even if it was way under, it didn't matter. Uh, and he wasn't necessarily good at reconciling loss. Uh, and so that's okay too. But shepherding that tone was what felt, uh, that, that was the most rewarding thing for me. And, and being uh, peas in a pod with, with Dana on that, uh, we just, we could, anybody who, who challenged it was, uh, they kind of buckled because Dana was so articulate and when the tone, as the tone was realized and it manifest and was presented in this way, it was undeniable. It made the show so unique and is so unique uh, that uh, that's what I, that's what I, that was my number one takeaway. Yeah. Uh, from Stan. Well, that makes perfect sense. I, you said something so great when you said that, you know, that, that, that at the core, uh, particularly for Stan, is this thing that's happened to him that he may or may not be great at processing. And that really struck me like, oh, sometimes the most interesting to, thing to watch a character do is avoid the thing that's right in front of them. You know, like that's fascinating to see, to not necessarily see someone plow straight through a process, but right. to do everything Stan, they can to shut that off is really interesting. If, if, if he authentically doesn't have that equipment. Yeah. Or access to a priest or a rabbi or a shrink who maybe he could bounce this, um, what he's struggling with uh, off of. Well, that's out. That's yeah. not going to happen. Yeah. In, 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 the, in the arc of this guy's story. Uh, and so those are out. What, what's he going to do about this? And he's going to time travel? Great. <laughs> what? <laughs> That's what you're going to do? Okay. Good for what ails you. Good for what ails Good you. Good for what ails you. <laughs> and so that, to me, is that, that's, that's Dana chipping in with uh, trying to get this guy somehow to reconcile this loss. Yeah, absolutely. How? Time travel. <laughs> What? Through a cabin, through a cabin. It's cool. It's cool. What? Uh, when were you acting in high school as well? Or it sounds like no. you were so busy. Jock. jock. Total jock. When did it? When did you get bit, so to speak? I did a ton of radio at Ohio Wesleyan my first year, freshman. Then I transferred to Syracuse, and I went to a bunch of different. They have a communication school there called Newhouse, which is uh, pretty great. And I became clear. I was writing copy for all these upperclassmen, and you weren't allowed to say it. You just had to hand it, and I'm writing draft after draft of copy for sports and news and I'm like I'm a, I want to be a storyteller so I, then I transferred and every time you transferred in college you were a loser yeah and so I transferred three years in a row then I transferred to NYU to the undergrad uh, circle in the square which was a zoo uh, and so I found <laughs> out that there's NYU grad and so I transferred there so I went to four different schools in four different years wow and then at NYU grad with Olympia Dukakis and Ron Van Lu and this faculty that was stunning uh, the mantra became eight a week, which is a Broadway schedule and an off-Broadway schedule, and it just became about honing and preserving your instrument to be able to do eight a week. And that, uh, having a toolkit uh, to be able to do eight a week, whether it was executing that fight at the finale of the first act, that you don't get a rib, uh, or that scene where you're going to be elevated and it, it's more about breathing with your diaphragm than up in, up in your neck where you will lose your voice yeah. and you won't do eight a week um, or, or uh, whatever it takes to be able to do eight a week that was jammed down our esophagus in a good way. Uh, and that 
is the way I feel, that for some reason I hooked into that. It felt very utilitarian, and eight a week, uh, that toolkit is when you go to Georgia and it's, it's 110 with uh, 97 degree humidity and lightning's coming, it, your tool, you're going to use your tools yeah. to do that scene. Well, in that regard, you know, it's funny because people, I think it's very easy to distinguish between, you know, being a, a jock and being a theater nerd, but the physicality that you mentioned, I mean, the fact that you were training to do sports and have that endurance and, you know, they're, they're certainly very close to one another in terms of conditioning and here are the variables that you can control and here are the variables that you can't control uh, and even just mindset like how are you what's your relationship to your body what's your relationship to the commitment you've made to do all of this stuff especially they, eight a week. they do work well together I've never done bra- I mean I can't I would not feel comfortable. I'd love to say that you know I feel like I have the chops to go do a play I know I don't I would have to go to voice school. I mean, I would, I would have to. I would have to attack it as if it were something that was, in, in many ways, just brand new. Because otherwise, yeah, I, would, be I know I would feel like I got hit by a train. There's just no way I wouldn't. Yeah, but you'd train, and you'd, you'd nail it. Yeah. You'd crush it. Well, I appreciate that. Last time I, I was lucky enough to do a, a revival of Glengarry with uh, Al Pacino and Bobby Cannavale about five years ago um, at the Schoenfeld, which is on 44th, uh, right off of 8th. And I trained for it. Uh, I set up a theater boot camp uh, in Los Angeles, and I trained for it for three months before I went to rehearsal. Wow, that's it was great. A lot, a lot of it was fear-driven, Yeah. Uh, yeah. which is fine um, <laughs> yeah. for me. Uh, yeah. But I, I set up a theater boot camp prior to the proper rehearsal, and it yielded profound dividends. When you arrived at the rehearsal, having kind of had the experience, I assume that you didn't do the the training the the, the three months of boot camp with anybody who was in the cast. Absolutely, that was not. all you. So when you got there, um, what was that transition like? I don't know really what I'm asking, but the sort of idea of be, it being like really needing to get this in line, I'm gesturing to myself, and then joining an ensemble. Was there stuff that you thought you would be prepared for that came as a surprise when different personalities entered into it? What came as a surprise, and I forgot because I hadn't done a play in a second or two, um, was that in the rehearsal process with an ensemble, the problem or the squeaky wheel gets all the attention, and I wasn't the problem. So I, my rehearsal process with the ensemble was largely zero. <sighs> and so there was uh, other variables that were struggling, and that's where the focus went. And so if I hadn't done this theater boot camp in Los Angeles for the three months prior to it, uh, I don't, it would have been uh, a very different experience, and not as fulfilling, and not as liberated. Uh, and I was open to exploring. There's something that Jack Benny used to do uh, called a Benny Pause. Hmm. And a Benny Pause is, and it takes spine, and it's, it, it, it approaches milking something, but it's right before you're milking either a joke or a moment because you're doing it consciously, and, and you're taking it off the 1,100 people that are here tonight, and you know the text, and they don't, and you know what the next line is, and they don't, and you can, you can lean into a moment. It's kind of a Benny Pause. And so I, I felt so empowered um, by pretty early on uh, after previews, I started exploring Benny pauses. And 
it was one of the most thrilling things. It's high wire stuff, man. Yeah. And you can you can lean into into a moment, <laughs> and and you know you know you got them right here, and then bang, you just yeah. take it, and you have eleven hundred people in your back pocket, and it's thrilling. That's really really exciting. It's thr- it takes yeah. spine. Yeah. If you're gonna milk it, you're gonna wreck it. Right. But a Benny pause and this guy's timing. If you go back, well, yeah, I was going to say the Museum, Museum of Broadcast. You can Google it. But uh, I used to go to the Museum of Broadcast and, and watch uh, some of these guys. And these, this thing that's uh, referred to as a Benny pause is just this little bit of air. That's all. Man, it pulls them in. Yeah. It's spine-tingling stuff. You know what it reminds me of? although I, I don't necessarily know that it has the same gravitas, is even just for me in improv, as I've done it over and over again over the years, the, um, the idea of silence in improv is very intimidating to the audience because they're worried for you. Like, if you get real quiet in improv or two people come out and start a scene and neither one of them are speaking for some length of time as they're sort of collecting themselves or they're sort of becoming, you know, unspoken understanding of what may or may not be happening in the scene, not 100% knowing, because if you've got an idea in your head, you don't know if your partner is going to have the same idea. But feel, so what happens a lot of the time in improv is you want to fill that space. You just want to fill it with something. Oh, I'm sure. And so I, that's what it reminds me of for me is, is getting better at it as I've gotten older and feeling more comfortable just taking my time. Like, we got, th- we got this. This is going to scare the shit out of them. And then we're going to do something great. And there will be that collective sort of like, oh, it's okay. Oh, they got this. I'm not, I'm not sitting on the edge of my seat going, are you about to just flop because you're frozen for some reason? I would think in improv... Or this is a question. Does it, do you start to trespass into taking the audience out of it if they're worried about the two people up there? I think there, there's, there are things that you have to, that I feel like I've had to disconnect from with improv. And one of them is like w- wanting to laugh. And so, there, so it's absolutely symbiotic and your show absolutely depends on you know the sort of energy of the audience and and what they're getting from it but i think that the dependence on the ev- uh, on the audience for some comedians um becomes uh, uh, almost like in golf like a handicap like well you're you're coming to the table really relying on them to do xyz and if it doesn't happen you see it happen all the time with comedians they blow up their audiences like they get mad at them like that was a great joke. What do you, uh, you know, or 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 they sort of retreat into themselves. And I don't do stand up, and I could not do stand up. So hats off to people like Dana who you know just live in that space so comfortably. It, it looks impossible. It looks to impossible. Me. When and, it's good. Uh, yeah, yeah. But so I think there's, I think there's, there is kind of it's an interesting question because there there is sort of a simultaneous like we're all having this ephemeral experience together and it truly will never be repeated because we're making shit up and we'll never remember even oh, right, what we said by the end. But there's also has to be a little bit of a separation that's like, I can't care that much about how you feel in this wow. moment or I'm going to start thinking about that and then I will not be able to be spontaneous in the way I need to be. Right. So it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a weird merging of those things. Oh, oh, it's time for a quick break. 
I will be back after a word from our friends at Maximum Fun. Smurl. I'm Sydney McElroy. And I'm Taylor Smurl. And together we host a podcast called Still Buffering, where we answer questions like Why should I not fall asleep first at a slumber party? How do I be fleet? Is it okay to break up with someone using emojis? And sometimes we talk about bugs. No, we don't. Nope. <laughs> Find out the answers to these important questions and many more on Still Buffering, a sister's guide to teens through the ages. I am a teenager. And I I was two butts, 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 butts. I want to get into this mash game that I warned you about. Okay. Um, I'm going to start out because we're talking about performing on the stage. Um, let's do it. This is sort of an alternate universe. Time doesn't really exist the way it does here. Uh, three roles. Uh, if you can think of anything, this is all very off the top of your head, I realize. So look forward to two hours from now going, God damn it. Why didn't I say blah, blah, blah. 100%. We're just living in this improv moment. Okay. Uh, three roles non-gender specific, whatever, anything's possible in this world that we're creating uh, that you would love to play on stage that you've seen happen or you've always secretly thought like, I mean, I can do a Lady Macbeth <laughs> if, I, if I was given the opportunity. Uh, I'd love to play Sweeney Todd. Great. For sure. Uh, I don't care if it's at a musical theater in Omaha. A dinner theater, yeah. <laughs> I could care less. Sooner or later, I'm going to do Sweeney Todd. Nice. Uh, I would like to play... Uh, does it have to be on stage, or it can be anywhere? And let's do anywhere. Um, I would like to somehow find a father uh, in, a, in an integrated family with, with a child who has special needs, Uns like Minnie, Minnie just did Speechless. with her show. Yeah. Uh, I'd love to, and they're hard. It's, a, yeah. it's hard to find that. But I'd love to do that, so we'll call it Special Needs Dad. Great. And... Uh, yeah, I'd love to play a woman like Robin did with uh, Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. That just, not a revival of Mrs. Doubtfire, right. but, but something akin to. I'd love to, to play a gender bending um, person. I, uh, well, I was obsessed with the movie Tootsie growing up and, uh, and, and, and Broadway very much. Smash. Yeah, I haven't seen it. I got I I to see it. But that was, that was a real lesson for me and just and even that moment where you know he's 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 just him and he's back and he, everyone knows that he was you know they feel betrayed and that that moment where Jessica Lang is like you know I'm I'm I miss her like just from the bottom right. of her heart I genuinely miss that woman she's still real to me you know she doesn't say this but clearly it she's still this real thing to her that she can't let go of. And then Dustin Hoffman says, you know, she misses you too. And it's just like, oh, what a perfect moment. Pretty good. Yeah, gotta, I got to work on my Dustin Hoffman. Um, okay, great. Uh, let's do three places in the world. Imagine getting there is no object uh, that you would like to have a vacation home. Uh, Siena in Italy. Mm. In, in Tuscany. Um, somewhere high up in Colorado. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Above Boulder somewhere, and in Dublin. Nice. Okay. Three places and times in history 
you're in a safety bubble, so whatever you're observing is not going to get you. You're not going to get the croup uh, or be shot. Ah. Uh, but three, three, and it doesn't. It could be a very specific moment, uh, or it could be sort of an era that you get the chance to see firsthand. I, I, since I'm since I'm just a, a student and not necessarily a parishioner, I would love to have been able to hang around uh, this person named Jesus. Yeah, since right. I'd love to see what this person's thing was. Agreed. Um, I I don't want to misrepresent that I'm I'm a Bible beating. I just would like to see who this guy was. Hundred percent. Strip it all down and just see this person. All these yeah, people. Absolutely. Uh, I would love to have seen who and what Napoleon was, because uh, he he again uh, impacted a generation, and I would have liked to party with Teddy Roosevelt. Nice. Teddy are fantastic. Uh, okay, let's do three. Uh, this is sort of three worlds that you can jump into and just engage with the characters. It could be a film, it could be a book. You're not reliving the plot. It's just somebody has established this world that uh, that does something for you for whatever reason. Let's see. I would love to have been in Rome during Caligula. Where oh yeah. Everybody was just going bananas. <laughs> It's true. I, th- that reminds me of like, I wish I could experience observing mass hysteria about something like the dancing plague. Yeah. I would love to be to be there physically and be like, is this going to ha- am I going to get this? Am I going to suddenly feel like I can't stop dancing just because the collective conscious has decided that we all are inflicted with something that makes us dance? That's crazy. How fascinating. I would love to have been with Kamehameha when he was inventing what Hawaiian culture would ultimately be. Mm. And third, I would like to have been with Oppenheimer at Los Alamos to see uh, something that impacted us maybe more than anything else in the history of mankind. Absolutely. All right, I'm taking it light. Three foods or beverages, whatever, three substances that in this reality, for whatever reason, it's either, you know, ecologically you feel guilty about it or high in calories doesn't make you feel great or have an allergy to, or even just a rare food that you can't just have at the snap of your fingers because you had it once in Japan. This is, in, in this world, you can have as much as you want of whatever this thing is with zero negative ramifications to anyone or anything. I would love, I, I, because of a, a health thing, I had to stop eating meat two years ago. I would love to be able to eat steak without Great. any any issues. Great. Um, I'd love to have as much dairy as I please. Yep, 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 yep. I just can't. Yep. And um, I'd love to be impervious to sugar. Great. And I can't eat any of those three things. <laughs> my friend. My friend. Uh, three, and I want to. I know. <laughs> no, it's not, the, the urge, the desire is, has not disappeared. The, or the desire is still there. Well, listen, this could be your ticket to it right here, this, this fictitious uh, alternate universe. You can know that the alternate universe you might be living large, and <laughs> then you can deep, deeply Rome. resent him. <laughs> deeply resent him. Caesar and Caligula. <laughs> exactly. Good luck. Uh, okay, next category. Uh, three people from, again, I'm really leaning up because I know you're a history buff, but three people from history uh, that 
uh, you sort of have a bat phone too. It's like this person is your buddy, but also your mentor. Um, and somehow you can uh, transcend through time over the phone and, and, and call this person or, you know, just ask them questions about stuff. I know we've kind of covered some of this, but it could also be a character from a book or a movie, but somebody who you can try to drop into your world and, and engage with and, and learn from. I would love to, to have a, a, a direct connection with Vincent van Gogh to maybe share in his madness or, or pr- provide a shoulder to him. Yeah. Uh, but that might wreck his art. I would love to um, be in Spain with, uh, with Hemingway uh, during the Spanish Revolution and, 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 or he'd be able to talk to him about it as a correspondent, which yeah. is what he was. Yeah. And I would, I would love to, to ha- have, have a phone call with Amelia Earhart on her final uh, trip to oh, see no. what the heck was going on. If it was all that, or if it was just a mistake, or see what happened to this incredible woman. Yeah. Listen, speaking of incredible women, I should have warned you that the MASH game usually involves a fictitious romance, could be a flimsy thing, could be a life partner. You know I adore Nicole. I always feel terrible. Sometimes people are like, oh, this is no problem. I got some crushes. And sometimes people are like, oh, I don't want to. But do you have either, again, figures in history or female characters from films or you used to have a crush on Angela Lansbury? So, yeah, so these are characters. Rita Hayworth. Uh, Great, 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 great. In Gilda. That's just a natch. Okay. Claudia Cardinale in The Professionals. And this is, I don't know why I find her attractive because I'm pretty... Pretty sure uh, she she wasn't but uh, wasn't uh, Barbara Stanwyck is just just crushes me. Yeah, I just think she's the biggest badass of all time. Love it, love, love, love. Okay, uh, and this last one, I mean, now we're treading into like beauty pageant territory. So it doesn't have to be like I visualize world peace. But are there elements, what are elements uh, that exist in the world? Maybe it's not something as vast as the cure for cancer. Um, or maybe it is. But three things that, you know, you would love to see resolved or people educated to uh, by the end of your lifetime. Like, we figured this out, or we understand this, or we stopped fucking fighting and, and having this happen here, or, you know what I mean, we discovered the this. I'd, I'd love to see us get a clue about Alzheimer's. Yep. We already have erectile dysfunction figured out. So, that's <laughs> so that save it. We're good there. Um, so that'd be redundant. Sure, 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 sure. Uh, I'd like to figure out another platform for Stan. Great. Obsessed much, John? <laughs> Listen, you think um, I'm going to argue with that one? Forget it. And uh, the third would be uh, uh, when, when the Segways came out, those, those tilted two, two-wheel vehicles that go yeah. around, um, there was all these rumors before it came out because it was coming from the Silicon Valley and all the biggest brains in the room were working on this thing. Yeah. And, and the reveal was going to be world-changing. And it came out and it was the fucking Segway. I thought it was going to be a jetpack. Uh-huh. <laughs> yes. I'd like a jetpack. Fantastic. Fantastic. Great answer. Uh, okay, pick a number between one and seven. Uh, three. Great. All right. I am going to do, I'm going to pause this, Good. do some very quick, I can't even call it math. Uh, I will come back with your 100% guaranteed fictitious alternate universe mash future. 
All right, listen. I, I, I got to get to something straight away. Was there a particular role that Barbara Stanwyck played as a specific character that you were uh, especially taken by? Okay, so that's who you end up with. I'm going to tear off that Band-Aid because I'm not sure actual Barbara Stanwyck, she may or may not have what, been into the, dudes. She's so smoking in the yeah. Lady Eve. It's well, the Lady Eve, the character, has now come to life and is your well, the romantic Eve partner. In the Lady Eve is a snake. Yeah. Well, there you go. But it's Hank problem. Fonda is just... <laughs> He can't even, she's he just so amazing, it. he yeah. can't even handle it. All right, so I started off with that because uh, I wanted to, to just establish that right away because there was a difference between the actress and the, and the character. Uh, I want to uh, let you know that you will be absolutely playing Sweeney Todd. It's right here in the cards. Uh, when you have finished, maybe maybe when you when you wrap that, uh, you're ready for a little vacation at your house in Siena. <sighs> Uh, I know for sure that there are, you know, it's easy to get to, but if you want to kind of take the most fun way of getting there, rest assured you got a jetpack. We got jetpacks, guys. Best afternoon of my life. Jetpacks. Speaking of flying through the air, you also have the amazing opportunity to speak to Ms. Amelia Earhart on the day. How about it? Her biggest. It's all kind of tying together here. Uh, Amelia Earhart. Uh, Not only that, but you. can have the experience of, of sort of being side by side with Oppenheimer in Los Alamos. Wow. And that seminal kind of goosebumps Ooh. moments. Reinvents mankind. Uh, and then listen, you got to loosen up a little bit after all that heavy. You're going to party with Teddy Roosevelt. That's going to be fun. With unlimited amounts of sugar. <laughs> sugar is what I get. That's a nice broad thing. You, that you, basically everything has sugar. You can go nuts. Right. You're going to get that delicious sugar rush. Nothing bad's ever going to happen. You should be partying with Teddy R. Yes. Uh, And that, my friend, is your mash future. Wow. Well played, my friend. Well, well played indeed. Uh, It's a hell of a future. This has been so fun. I'm so glad that we uh, had a reason to catch up because we live very far away from each other. So we found a wonderful halfway mark. I'm sure we could only do this for another 10 hours. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. I, I looked at the clock and was like, yeah, that felt like 15 minutes. Um, uh, I'm crazy about you. I, I hope we you. get a chance to do stuff together. And uh, for the rest of you. Oh, my God. I almost forgot this. I forgot. When I do my Boys of Summer uh, episodes, I ask them to, I really should have warned you about this one, sing or hum or uh, songs or, or, or speak sing a little bit of Don Henley's Boys of Summer. It's a, it's a tradition. After the boys have summer have gone. Talk to you guys next time on the podcast. The show is recorded by me and edited by Julian Burrell. And as always, the JV Club theme song is Back Before We Were Brittle by the amazing Say Hi. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture Artist owned Audience supported